Amen. You may be seated. You'll turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. Took a bit of a break from our study in Ephesians for the Easter season, but we're back this morning resuming our study in Ephesians. We're in chapter 4 where we left off. Again, I want to pick it back up again. I want to say thank you for your faithfulness to come and to hear the exposition of God's Word. That's what we're about here at North Point. Why this church was founded. And uh, we just kind of methodically plod our way through God's Word. Trying to learn it. Trying to apply it. Trying to grow from it. And I promise we're going to get through Ephesians sometime. Just not anytime soon. So we're in chapter 4. And uh, we're in verses 25 through 27 of Ephesians chapter 4. As I read, let us remember this is the word of God. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor for we are members of one another be angry and yet do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity he who steals must steal no longer but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. And again, that is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask your blessing upon our time together in your, your word. We, we, we love it. We treasure it. We know this is a special blessing that you've given to us, your, your people. The freedom to come and to worship and to be exposed to the truth. And we pray that you would use your word this day in our lives as the sword of the spirit it might cut us under it might show us our sin it might show us our need for repentance and for grace we pray that by your holy spirit you would be our teacher our helper today understand and write what your word tells us and then to apply it to our life we might grow in the grace and knowledge of jesus that we might be more like him we make our prayer in his name amen you know, when I was a child, my parents were very concerned about my conduct and about my behavior. They tried very hard to make sure that my behavior fit within their expectations for me as their son. And they had, they had ways to make sure that happened. There was a large hedge bush behind our house when I was growing up. And it seemed like my mother took great delight and going back there and cutting switches from that hedge bush. And when my father saw my father taking off his belt, I knew that somehow my behavior had not met his expectations in some particular way. They wanted me to live up to the family name. They wanted me to protect the family honor. And they knew they wanted me to do that by my good conduct, by my good behavior, and my obedience to the rules, household rules they had set. The truth is that God has the same kinds of expectations 
for those of us who are members of his family. You know, when you're born again by the sovereign power of God and, and brought into to, to saving faith in Jesus Christ, you become a part of his family. He becomes your heavenly father. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and God expects you to live as a member of that family. You know, the only reliable evidence that you belong to God's family is not some past experience, but rather it is the present reality of living in conformity to the way God expects his people, his children, to live in obedience to Christ. Now, what we find here, I think, at the end of chapter 4, are some of those family expectations. What God expects from his children in terms of their conduct and their behavior. You know, my parents made it very clear to me what they expected. And God, you know, he makes it very clear, doesn't he? What he expects from his people and from his children. Now, what we find here is in no way even near an exhaustive list. But it is an exemplary list of the kinds of behaviors that God expects us to perform as his children. The first thing I want us to do this morning, since we've taken a three-week break from our study in the book of Ephesians, is to kind of step back for just a moment. And to look back just briefly at the previous section, in particular about what Paul said there about the importance of laying aside the old self and putting on the new self because I think what he's doing here beginning with verse 25 is just kind of following up on that. You see in the previous section he talked in general about the importance of of laying aside the old self putting on the new self but in our text this morning he deals very specifically addressing some very specific things behaviors character traits that we are to lay off and other things we are to put on in their place. If you look back in um, verse 22, you might recall that we saw there, Paul talked about their former manner of life. Every believer has a former manner of life. Look, if you don't have a, a former manner of life, you're not a believer. Now, for some, the, the change from what was to what is, is more radical than it is for others. But look, all of us ought to notice a difference. A difference in that once we used to live for ourselves, and now we live for God, we once lived to please ourselves, and now we seek to live to please Him. You see, when we were converted... When God brought us to saving faith, we were, the Bible says, made new creatures. The old things passed away, and new things came. We moved from being what the Bible describes as being spiritually dead to having spiritual life. You know, that's what we found in chapter 2, wasn't it? Verse 1 says, for, by, for you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And they were told in verse... Um, Five, that, that God caused us to be born again by His grace. So there's a past sense in which old things have passed away, new things have come. 
Spiritual death has passed away. New life has come. But there's a present reality that results from that as well. And that is we ought to be in a daily process of laying aside the old and putting on the new. Of laying aside what displeases God and putting on what pleases Him. Of laying aside disobedience to God's Word and putting on obedience to His truth. Now again, Paul talked about that in a general way in the previous section, verses 20 to 24. But now he's going to get very specific and talk about some specific things that we're to put off and put on. And there are three of them, three of these behaviors listed in our passage. We'll deal with more of them next Lord's Day, God willing, when we come uh, to the next section. So there are three behaviors we're going to be talking about uh, this morning that we're to put off and put on. And one of those is found in verse 25, where we see that we are to lay aside falsehood and we're to put on truth. Verse 25 says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. We are members one of another. What the text is saying there is we're not to lie, but rather we are as God's people to speak what is true. Now, you might wonder, why would... Why would Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, put this particular admonition, this particular behavior first in what is really a a rather lengthy list of character traits or or behaviors here at the end of Ephesians 4? And I believe that we want to look for a reason. It's because this particular character trait is so crucial in the life of a Christian. Your relationship with the truth says a lot about your relationship with Christ. You see, Jesus, when he identified himself, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the truth. And so therefore, if we are his people and going to live like his people, if we're his children and going to live like we're members of his family, then we ought to be people of the truth as well. The Bible gives us a strong contrast between Satan and God and their relationship with the truth. The Bible says in John 8 that Satan is the father of lies. He's the father of lies. And there is no truth in him. But we're told in the book of Titus that that God cannot lie. And Hebrews 5 tells us it is impossible for God to lie. And so there really can't be a a more clear line of demarcation than that. Lies are of the devil, and the truth is of God. And so if we're going to live like a child of God, we must be people who are committed to the truth. Now, a believer can fall into lying just like he can fall into any other sin. But if his or her life is characterized by one lie after another, one pattern of deception after another, then that person has no biblical basis to consider that they are a Christian. What does it mean to lay aside falsehood as Paul describes it here in verse 25? Well, it means not to say things that we know are not true, 
or that we know are contrary to the truth. That's what a lie is. A lie is a statement that is contrary to truth and is a statement made with the intent to deceive. And that's what lying is. And the Bible says that to lie is to sin. But falsehood includes other things than just a mere statement that is not true. (coughs) It includes, for example, exaggeration. Or what we call today embellishing the truth. You know, we say that the fish was that big when the fish was really this big. saying things that you know or making promises you know that you cannot keep putting down wrong information on your tax return betraying a confidence telling someone you'll be there at 9 and you're not there till 9.30 saying one thing when you really merely mean something else. And the text says that as believers, we're to lay all that aside. Therefore, he says, laying aside falsehood. Falsehood is no longer to characterize our lives. And then, of course, we're to put on the truth. Laying aside falsehood, he says, verse 25, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. Now, we're to tell the truth at all times, but it seems to me in particular, in verse 25, Paul's addressing telling the truth in the context of the church. He's he's writing to the church. And he says, each one of you in the church, speak the truth, and you do it to your neighbor. Speak the truth to your neighbor. And and so it, it seems to me that he's talking about the importance, the value, the necessity of, of telling the truth, speaking the truth in the context of the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 25 that a reason we're to do that is because we are, we are members one of another. You know, we, we talk a lot about the unity of the church here. And we strive to, to protect both the, the purity and the, and the peace of the church. The unity of the church is important to us. Because we understand that the Bible says we are members of one another. I'll tell you that that unity is based to a great degree upon the fact we we're honest with each other. We tell each other the truth. Unity is built on trust. And trust is built on the fact that we we know that when someone says something, we can believe it and know they're telling us the truth. Now let me say a couple of things about telling the truth before we move on. Telling the truth does not mean that you tell everything that you know. Speaking the truth does not negate protecting a confidence or keeping essential and legitimate secrets. I carry around a lot of things that I know it would be extremely inappropriate for me to tell anyone under any circumstance. People need to have the confidence they can come tell me things in confidence. And that's not going to be said to someone else. 
And even if someone asks me a question about a particular situation or a particular person, it's not a lie for me to say I can't say anything about that. Also, the Bible has some very clear directions about how we tell the truth. You look back in verse 15 of this chapter. There Paul talked about speaking the truth in love. And as important as the truth is, we're to never use the truth as a bludgeon, as a weapon, or as a tool to get our own way. We're always to tell the truth, but to do so in a loving way. And that's because we love the person to whom we're telling the truth, and because we want the truth to be edifying to them, to encourage them, not to destroy them or to beat them down. And so, we are to lay aside falsehood and put on the truth. The second behavior that we find in this text is found in verse 26, where it says that we're to lay aside sinful anger and put on a righteous anger. Anger is an emotional response or an emotional arousal caused by something that displeases us. And I want you to notice here, the admonition is not against all anger. In fact, it is a command to anger, isn't it? Be angry. Be angry, the Bible says. But there's a clear word of warning added to it, and that is, and yet do not sin. You see, there is a right kind of anger. It's what we call a righteous anger. You know, the Bible often speaks of God being angry. In fact, if you look as I did to remind myself again this week, if you get out a concordance, one of the things I love to do, I've got a big old thick concordance. I know a lot of people use their phones today and their computers today, but I'm still a book guy and i got this big thick concordance. I just love to go to my concordance and do word studies or chase words through the Bible or or see how many times words are used in the Bible. And boy, you go to anger in a concordance. And it's scary, folks. It'll scare you. And it talks about the anger of God. Now, God's anger is always directed against sin. For example, the Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. And so it is right for us to be angry. To be angry at sin, to be angry at immorality, to be angry at injustice. And so, to be honest, there are lots of things in our culture today, in our society in which we live, that will cause us as Christians to be angry. In fact, I think a legitimate question to ask of Christians and of the church today is where's the anchor? Where's the outrage? Where is the anger of the church against the blatant sin and open immorality that we find taking place in our culture today? We're like the toad sitting in the cool pan of water and the stove is turned on and the water gradually gets hotter and hotter until it just boils that frog to death 
and it just sat there and let it happen. Let's be honest, folks. That's where the church is today. When I say the church, I mean the church at large. We call the evangelical church today. Let's not let North Point be guilty of that. Let's have some anger. That's what the Bible says. Be angry. Be angry against the wickedness, against the immorality, against the way in which our culture has turned against the truth of God's Word. And we embrace and accept all kinds of deviation from what God tells us He expects from His people. And so the Bible says to be angry. And yet, it is indeed a, a tricky thing for a, for a Christian, isn't it? Because our, all our emotions are tainted by sin. We have to be very careful. Very easy to maintain that our, our, our anger is right, righteous, but it really isn't. Look, folks, as one who has struggled all his life with the temple and with unrighteous displays of anger, we must be very, very careful that we don't allow what Paul says here is an excuse to sin. Look, if you turn it around, this is what he says. Do not sin by being angry. Be angry, but do not sin. And so, do not sin by being angry, he tells us. So it's a tricky proposition for the Christian. James 1.20 says, be slow to anchor. Be slow to anchor. And he goes on to say that the anger of God does not accomplish the righteousness. Or anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Now this text gives us two cautions about uh, anger and the displays of anger. And one is uh, the uh, is it, is we're, we're, if we get angry, it's supposed to be short-lived. In fact, Paul, through the Holy Spirit, puts a time limit on. And that's the end of the day. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. To allow anger to sit and fester, to boil... It's a very, very unhealthy thing. So if you sin by being angry, if you get angry, make sure you deal with that before the day is done. He goes on to say also in verse 26, excuse me, verse 27. The other caution is we're not to give the devil an opportunity through our anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. We kind of pull that verse out of context sometimes, and certainly we're not to give the devil any kind of opportunity, but here it is specifically given in regard to our displays of anger. You know, the Bible says the devil is a a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone of you and me whom he can devour. 
And again, if you're like me, this is kind of public confession time. You're like me. And it's real easy to get real angry real fast. You be real careful. Lest in your anger you give the devil an opportunity to lead you to greater sin or to destroy relationships. And so the second uh, behavior is we're to put off a sinful anger and put on a righteous anger. And then there's one more behavior. It's found in verse um, 28 where it says that we're to put off stealing and put on work and generosity. Text is clear here in verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer. Now, of course, stealing is dealt with in the Eighth Commandment where God says you shall not steal. Now, I would imagine that most of us if we're honest, if we're honest, we think, you know, that's, that's one of the ten I'm doing pretty good on. I'm not a thief. Never been arrested for shoplifting. Not a thief. Folks, there are lots of different ways that we can steal. We steal by padding our expense accounts adding miles to our mileage for more reimbursement. I steal when I daydream in my office and you're paying me to work. We steal when you're taking a test in school and you know the answer and you look over to the person beside you and you can answer from their test and put it down on yours. We steal when we overcharge for products that we're selling or services that we're providing. Not paying what you owe to another person is a form of theft. Really, the Bible lists more ways that we can steal than we have time to go over this morning. The Bible says that stealing, theft, is no longer to be part of our lives as Christians. We are to put away stealing and we are to put on work. You see, the antidote to theft is labor. And that's what clearly the text says. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good. You know, work's hard. No matter what kind of work you do, if you really work, work is hard. But my wife, when she works, she'd come home and say, sometimes say, you know, work is a four-letter word. It's hard. And it's hard because of the curse God placed upon the sin of man in the Garden of Eden. That's one of the effects of the fall is now Work is work. It's labor. It's hard. But that doesn't diminish the fact that the Bible says that work is good. 
works an important thing for us. It's good for us to work and to use our hands, as the text says. It's so good, in fact, it's so so necessary, Paul says, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. Pretty strong words. If anyone is not willing to work, then neither should he eat. It's to our shame, folks, that we have diminished the value of work in our country. And that our government, let's be honest, our government even encourages people not to work through many of its social programs. The Bible says instead of stealing, we ought to be working. Now, the text makes it clear that the purpose of work is not just to provide for our own needs, but also to to give us something to share with those who do have need. Charity is a wonderful Christian virtue. In fact, Christians are to be the most charitable people on earth. Now, this gets into a sensitive area, and I try real hard not to be political. I'm not going to be political. I'm going to speak the truth. I hope. Maybe I don't need to say what I'm about to say. It is not the government's responsibility to be charitable. Government has a lot of God-given responsibilities, but being charitable is not one of them. You know what responsibility is to be charitable? It's the church. It's the church. And it is an indictment on the church that the government has had to take its place, its God-given place, in being charitable to the needy. It is not the role of the government to provide for the needs of its citizens. That's the church's responsibility. And Paul goes so far as to say here in our text that one of the reasons we're to work is not just to provide for our needs, but so we'll have need have something to share with the one who has need. You see, our purpose in working is not so we can tear down our barns and build bigger barns so we can store more stuff. It's not so we can rent more storage buildings to put all the stuff we've accumulated. Now there's an indictment on our culture, isn't it? One of the purposes of the work is not to pad our pockets, but give us more to give away. You know, the church was doing what it ought to do in terms of providing for the needs of the needy. The government wouldn't have to do it. You know, one of the reasons that it's not just outside the realm of God's Responsibilities given to the government, why it's, why it's so impractical for the government to do it. The government can't be responsible with it. Look, folks, we're not just to dole out money. We're, we're, we're to, to take care of people. 
and, and make sure that the money is given is spent on, on the purpose for it was given. You know, I, I've done this a long time. I've had a lot of people come to me, ask for all kinds of things. And I know that I've given a lot of money to people who took it and went to the liquor store. Told me they needed money. Now, I know it's easy to say, well, that's, that's their fault. You did what you should have done. You gave them the money. They, they, they told you you had a need. No, it's, that's an indictment on me too. Look, folks, when I give out money, I'm not usually giving out just my money. I'm giving out God's money. And the church is to make sure that it's not just a physical need and, and the people have something to go buy food with, but look, they get some sort of oversight, some sort of accountability here, some sort of provision to get in, in the church. I ask people when they come to me now for, a hand, for, for, for uh, help, I say, are you in a church? Is there someone who can help you, oversee you, guide you, direct you? Do you have some spiritual counsel in your life? And that's what the church is to provide, not just money, but that kind of guidance and accountability. You see, we find again in our text that becoming a Christian is not just being saved from the torments of hell. This is not just a life insurance policy from destruction eternally. Becoming a Christian is becoming a new person. And becoming a new person means living in a new way, doing things in a different way, putting off the old and putting on the new. What we find in our text this morning is three specific ways of doing it. Putting off lying, putting on the truth. Putting off a sinful anger, putting on a righteous anger. Putting on theft, putting off theft, putting on work and generosity. You ever wonder how God wants you as his child to live? Just open his book. He tells you. Pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word. We love it. And so easy to study sometimes and so hard to apply. And so we pray now for grace to do that. That you give us the ability by your Holy Spirit to be men and women, boys and girls of truth. That we would avoid a, a sinful anger. And we would, but we would be righteously anger, angry against sin. And we'd be careful not to steal from others. And all this many way but we would work and be faithful and generous that we might glorify you we ask it in Jesus name Amen